Hello and welcome to Meet the Education Researcher. This is a podcast from the Faculty of Education, Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. Hello and welcome back. Today we're talking about students' participation in STEM, science, technology, engineering and maths. To do this, I've caught up with Professor Louise Archer from University College London. Louise is a sociologist of education and she's leading various research projects looking at inequalities in young people's STEM participation. Perhaps most impressive of these is Louise's Aspires project, a 13-year longitudinal study that's tracking the STEM experiences of students from the ages of 10 through to 23. Aspires is a huge undertaking and has won national awards for research impact and research engagement. So I was really keen to hear how Louise was combining her sociological background with such a large-scale empirical undertaking. So first off, I asked Louise about her underpinning research interests. Regardless of the topic, what are the ideas, concepts and concerns that drive her research and writing? Since, since I came into academia, I've really been interested in the two, the two themes of identities and inequalities, which I think underpin my work. So I'm really interested in how people, particularly young people, how they see themselves, how they're seen by others, and how that's a mediator of learning and engagement. Um, and particularly, I'm interested in, well, in understanding, but also challenging social inequalities, so particularly in relation to yeah, race, class and gender um, in in education, and when you say challenging, I mean challenging the concept, or you know, um, uh, yeah, a little bit the concept, but particularly, I suppose what I'm really into research that makes a difference. So I'm really keen that our academic research doesn't just sit in journals and books, which is great in itself, but I'm really interested in that translation piece. So how do we create ideas that are useful in practice? So we like working with teachers, we love working with young people. Um, educators in out-of-school settings as well. So how can these ideas be useful for policy and practice? How can they help change uh, and challenge inequalities in that way? Which kind of answers the question I was going to ask you. As a sociologist, STEM could be seen as a bit of a dry topic. And I was just interested what kind of attracted you to to STEM. Most (laughs) of the sociologists go for very esoteric kind of left field topics, but it's a very important topic, clearly. So what was it that really kind of pushed you that way? In some ways, it was almost by chance. So um, most of my, my, none of my early work focused on STEM. I was interested in, as I was saying, young people's identity. So I'd done research on like British Muslim young people in schooling, um, British Chinese, like sort of the so-called secrets of uh, British Chinese educational success, dropping out of schools and education among teenage young people and so on. Um, I then moved um, to King's College London. And at that point, the head of department there, Jonathan Osborne, came, approached me and said, well, you know, you've got all this work on identity. We're doing this work in the STEM field. Why don't we bring the two together and see if the sociological lens can, you know, help add something and also whether the applied context, you know, be useful for my work as well to focus it a bit more. So we put in a, a grant together and and that was it. It was, uh, <laughs> that's how it began. So I always, always say yes to a, an idea from a colleague, but I'm, I'm interested in pursuing this work. You've actually been very interdisciplinary and you've written not just in sociology journals, but in maths journals, te- science journals. Te- how receptive have those other fields been to the sociological lens? I, I think very receptive. I mean, I, when I first started, I think I was you know, a little bit worried. Like, well, what's, who's this uh, wacky sociologist coming in with these ideas around identity? But actually, there, I mean, there are already... Um, there are people who have been working in those fields using those sorts of lenses and ideas. So it's not like I was 
bringing anything completely new in that respect. But I think also for any field, it's always useful to have people who are sort of outside it contributing as well as people who are inside it. And I was quite aware that I was, I had not come through a STEM route. And I think it's, it just gives you that sort of slight view from, from outside as well, which can help complement obviously in its it's important to have both sides absolutely and i've always find that fields are quite open and actually quite interested in what outsiders make of them so you've done a, num- a number of different stem projects now but i mean the one that's probably most familiar to people is the aspires project which is this huge longitudinal research project tracking young people a cohort of young people's science and careers aspirations over 13 years you're tracking them over a long period so what are the educational issues at stake here what are the what are the social issues that you're exploring so we're interested generally what are the what are the things that make a difference to a young person's trajectory? What makes some of them go in one direction and some in the other? So it has been, I mean, it's it's been a wonderful study. Um, it's been a, a challenge as well because we obviously started when they were in primary at age 10. Um, I hadn't worked in primary then, so you're sort of learning about primary, and then we moved through secondary. I had more experience of secondary there, but not necessarily in relation to the subject areas. But because we're trying to look broadly, we're also interested in what they're doing out of school. So, again, that's a whole other area that has been really interesting to get to grips with. The, the phase we've just finished, a lot of them have been through higher education, but also vocational routes and apprenticeships. So I think it's been incredibly rich and wonderful to be able to get those views. But I think as, a, as an academic, there's always that challenge of, wow, there's another huge literature that I have to now start to learn about. Um, so. Yeah, because I was going to ask you how you've kind of kept your interest, but the way you've just described it there, it sounds like a different project every wave that you look at. I think for me, it's it's the absolute privilege of being in academia. You get to learn the whole time. And I do love encountering a new field. And I think that's that's for me the personally rewarding thing. I mean, it would be nice in a way to have one area that you're just so expert in. But I think I do love having that, that broad, broad view and that challenge and just each time each stage you get to there's an amazing body of work there that colleagues have done that you can you can get to grips with and that can really help you so yeah that for me is the is the pleasure of it yeah absolutely now now one of the big take-home messages that's arisen from the project is this idea of science capital now how has your understanding of science capital changed over the, the course of the various times that you've collected data how's this concept kind of developed yes thanks that's a great question so um Again, it's been a learning journey. I wouldn't say that we're at the end of that yet either. Um, so we originally started using it as a way just to, it just felt like it made sense. Obviously, I've been influenced by the work of Pierre Bourdieu in sociology. So he had these ideas around cultural capitals, cultural knowledges and social capital as you know, social networks and contacts. And those seemed really helpful. But I was noticing in our data that it was really science related forms of knowledge, resource and contacts that were making a big difference. So I started using it really for myself at the start, just as a way to to make sense for myself of what seemed to be happening in in the data and making a difference. But then obviously, when it starts to be useful, you then need to think about it and unpick it and theorise it a bit more. And I think we learnt quickly that it's, again, how you use it. Using a shorthand can be really, really useful, but at the same time, it can be a complete minefield because it can be very open to interpretation. So I think some of the reasons the concept has been popular is because it feels elastic and it can make yeah. you can make your own sense of it. But there's also the danger. So we then started trying to write to pin it down a bit more. And one of the things we noticed was that often it was getting used in quite deficit terms, which wasn't our intention, but this idea that people are, lack, quote, unquote, lacking in science capital. And we can that's fill the them up. Exactly. And that they're, 
you know, that they're the problem and that we just need to give them more of this lovely science stuff. It's that sort of interesting part of if you read Bourdieu and you just read it within that framework you and just use those concepts and ways of thinking, it makes sense. But when you actually try to translate that into the real world, it gets quite tricky. So one of the ideas was this, um, you know, that capital isn't fixed. So it's a bit like currency. The value doesn't stay the same wherever it has to be. Um, it's the field or the context that you're in that gives it the value. And trying to translate that got really tricky because everyone thought, no, you have science capital and it's fixed. So we we have been trying to evolve it in various ways since. Um, I wouldn't say we've always been entirely successful, but it is, again, part of that sort of onward challenge of how you then translate it into practice. So in one sense, great, having these lovely, fancy concepts. But if you can't find a way to help a teacher in the classroom with it, then in a sense, you know, what, what is its real world value? But for, from an academic point of view, I mean, has it? what have you learned about Bourdieu and Bourdieu's theories <laughs> by kind of playing around with it? In one sense, I think um, they are really, they're really useful. I think once you get past the jargon, they stand the test of time in a, mm. in a lot of ways. I don't believe there's one theory from everywhere that explains everything. Uh, sociology, I think it, yeah, it is more complex. That. So in terms of helping us understand why do things stay the same? Why is it so difficult to change, for example, you know, these unequal patterns in participation? Bourdieu has a lot of really helpful concepts. It's, you know, he's written a lot. There's a lot there. There's always, you know, more in the box, so to say. But they're useful, but they do only go so far. So when we, for instance, are then trying to look at, okay, so why did some young people make it? Why did some young people from backgrounds that are underrepresented that you wouldn't expect go into STEM? It's less useful there. He's very good at explaining social reproduction, but not so much people who go against the grain. So that's where we've been turning to other, other concepts and ideas, because really it's like a toolbox. I think you use the right tool for the job, but you don't use one tool for every job. So just out of interest, where else have you been looking then to explain the success stories? So um, I think some of the work around, for example, like we're, sort of, um, critical black feminist work has been useful. Um, and again, it's when we're looking at different constituents, obviously lots of feminist work around gender. I don't think Bourdieu is the strongest on race and gender. He's much no. better on social class. Um, but also when looking at the, the social mobility stories in the study, I've actually found a little area of work on the sociology of luck that was really interesting. Because a lot of the time, it, often the assumption is that the people who make it are somehow just more talented than others. You know, there's the, the notion of the cream rising to the top. And when we looked across our sample, actually, whether they were you know, being socially mobile or not, young people were really resilient. They were really, you know, they ha- they were talented as well. It, it, they weren't failing, the ones who weren't making it. The ones who made it also had luck. And in a way, that's a sort of slightly depressing story. But for us, sociologically, it kind of makes sense because then we can unpick, well, what sorts of luck were they experiencing? And that tells you about particular sorts of capital that make a difference. And I think you can then potentially follow that through to say, well, then how can we design for luck in the sense of how, what do we need to provide to all young people? Because if they have the, the talent to get there, but they're just not getting the opportunity, then that, again, has different messages for policy. Fascinating. That's really, really interesting. And I was also really interested when you've looked at this data, and understandably, you've kind of looked at the intersections of this data by ethnic identity, gender, social class. Has anything surprised you over time about the way that the data has been patterned? I think we were... I think we were surprised quite early on about when when we look at um, young people's aspirations to continue into science, for example, to be a scientist. I really thought, given how massively interested many children are in science, 
that they'd be higher earlier on and that they'd decline. That was the pattern I expected. But actually we found interest was high. And statistically, from age 10 to 18, there was no statistical difference in the proportion of young people aspiring to go into science, which did surprise us because we, you know, I thought it'd be higher. And the profile of who continues to aspire to go into science gets narrower over time. So more likely to be boys, more likely to be you know, young people from more privileged social backgrounds and so on. So that didn't surprise me, but I think that almost like the small pool. And I think that made us realise at that moment that it's not all about interest. And a mm. lot of the interventions that are out there have all been working on this sort of quite sensible common sense notion. If you make more kids interested in science, more will go into it. And actually our data is saying, no, that's not the case. So that was one of the big early surprises. Yeah, no, that's really, really fascinating. And having this kind of mix of qualitative and quantitative data allows you to kind of really unpack those things. Now, you've all made it sound really clear, really interesting, really kind of compelling. And impact and engagement has been a kind of super successful part of the project. You've won awards. You've worked with some really impressive organizations in terms of impact collaborators. What have you learned from Aspires about how academic research can meaningfully impact? I think one of the key things I've learned is about the affordances, but particularly the limits of the academic language we use and the way we write and the way we produce our research. I think some of the best learnings I've had have been when we've worked in quite, um, not just on the Aspires project, but for example, on the Youth Equity and STEM project, we worked with science practitioners in science centres, zoos, STEM clubs and so on. And working over that that five-year period, you got to develop those relationships where people would be productively honest with you. And they would sometimes say to us, what do you mean? You're just using a language that makes no sense. What, What does that mean? How could we use that? So one of the things they said to us is you talk about taking a social justice mindset to your practice. What do you mean? Actually tie that down. And that led to a piece of collaborative work where we co-designed a reflective tool that practitioners could use to to do that. And that for me was so, it was so important. It, It was challenging our thinking. It helped us think in different ways. But then to come out with something at the end of it that, you know, grounded in practice, it's co-designed, but then people are actually now using it and saying, wow, I can now just think differently about my work and I can be more equitable. That to me is, you know, that's surely what a lot of it is all about. Yeah, yeah, quite literally research translation, I guess, in some Mm. ways. I'm just really interested, my final question, what are you thinking about might be something you'll turn to next? Is there kind of an an idea bubbling up in your head that you think in a few years' time you might turn your attention to? Oh, good question. Um, In some ways, you never know till it's there, do you? But um, it's... at the moment, we've got a new project at the moment, which is um, focusing on makerspaces. So we're looking at what's actual practice in these sort of like workshop, digital and uh, you know, sort of engineering type based workshop places. That's really interesting. We're working internationally. So I think a lot of our work to date has been quite UK focused. And again, that feels like a really useful area for us to learn more and to think about that translation piece. So we're working with partners in the US, but also Nepal, Palestine, um, Slovenia. So that feels like that that could, again, we can't quite predict what will come, but it feels that that would be a very productive space to. Yeah, and that's taking you into the realm of e-textiles and all sorts of different kind of areas. That's, that's fascinating. Well, thanks ever so much for taking the time to talk about it. It's really, really super interesting research. And good luck with it all. Pleasure. Thank you very much.